scale of two threshing floors. And it's threshing floors that bookend the life of David. And I want to invite you to join with me in this, in this journey. I'm not going to read a text per se. We're going to look at it in the midst of the sermon. But there is something about the presence of God. And while we, you and I are so blessed and we don't, we've already, you know, this year we went through the tabernacle plan and we saw all of the, 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 the ceremony that had to go, go in that. And I'm very thankful we don't have that same ceremony today. I'm, I'm glad that there is a freedom to worship God. There's a freedom to come into His presence. I can, I don't have to, you know, go go kill a, a, a lamb or, or kill a goat in order to be in His presence. I'm thankful for that, but I, I fear that sometimes because of that, we lose the importance and the, the majesty and the sovereignty of the presence of God. And I want to examine the life of David because I believe there is a right way to enter into the presence of God. And I want you to join me. Would you just bow your heads and would you ask the Lord to speak to you right now? Lord, we worship you. God, we've worshiped and we've, we've sang songs and we've clapped our hands and we've shouted unto you. And Lord, we've allowed ourselves to be in your presence by virtue of our praise and our thanksgiving. Now, I ask you to let that word that is so alive and so true find root in our heart, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. And amen. Hallelujah. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to take you on a journey. And we're going to first start in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 6. There's these moments of David's life that you, 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 you know, we tend to look at the big things of David. We look at uh, David killing Goliath. We look at uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. We look at David's prayer of repentance and how incredible it was, but there's these other moments, and so uh, if if you would, let's look at First Chance, First Samuel chapter 6, hopefully you have your Bible with you, and I may read some of it verbatim from the Bible, others I may paraphrase or allow the story to, to be fleshed out, but um, of course you, you know the story that the, uh, the, 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 it's kind of that moment between Judges, the book of Judges, where they had Judges and the, uh, the prophets that we have. And Samuel bridged that gap. Samuel was a judge of Israel, much like Samson was a judge in other places. But he was also the start of that prophetic voice in the nation of Israel. And Samuel, for all the good things that he did, his sons did not follow in the footsteps of Samuel the high priest. And his sons were very uh, evil and and in the midst of that, 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 that apostasy against God, they thought that they could grab the ark and carry it like some battle token into battle. And they went into the Philistines' encampment and they carried the ark of the covenant. And in doing so, uh, God did not bless them because they were not living right. And I, I just kind of want to impose this right here and interject this for a moment. When you don't live according to what God's word says, then you should have no anticipation 
that God is going to answer any of your prayer requests except the prayer of repentance and the prayer that God would spare you until you come to a time of repentance. I think it's pretty asinine to think that I can do whatever I want to do, live whatever way I want to live, and then when I get into a bind, suddenly I kind of start saying, oh, Jesus, help me, and Jesus is going to somehow incline his ear to me, and regardless of how I've lived, he's going to bless me. I don't think that's how it works. I'm not saying that we control the blessings of God or uncontrol the blessings of God, but there is this, this thing that God desires to work in the lives of people who are living for Him. But the children of Israel, they thought that they could do whatever they want to do. They could worship gods of Baal, and they could worship the Ashroth, and they could worship all of these false idols. But when the rubber met the road, and the Philistines were going to attack, and they didn't know what to do, they went into the tabernacle, they picked up the, the Ark of the Covenant, because, you know, the Ark of the Covenant worked for our grandparents. The Ark of the Covenant worked back for, for, for Caleb and, 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 and Joshua, and it worked for Moses. But you don't just take the Ark of the Covenant, carry it into battle, and think that's some be a magical talisman for God to move. And so God allowed the object of his presence to be taken. And the Philistines captured the Ark. It was a devastating moment for these children of, of Israel. It was a devastating moment for, for what God had done. And uh, when, when it began to, to they, they realized, if you will, they had lost the presence of God. It, it, it went to the, the temple of Dagon, which was a kind of a half God, half fish creature that, 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 that the Philistines worshipped. And the Bible says that when they put the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy in Dagon's temple, Dagon, that, 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 that idol fell over. And I love the irony of the Bible because the Philistines went to the temple of their God and realized their God fell over. And what did they do? They propped him up and they braced him. Now I want you to think about that because hopefully you see the irony of the word picture as I do. What kind of God needs help standing up and then making sure you tie him to the wall so he doesn't fall again. That's the God I want to serve, right? And, and then they did all that work. They, they put him back up. And I can, I mean, pardon my, my, my sarcasm and my cynicalness, but I can just see them, you know, they're reverently. And they're, you know, trying to put their God back up and get him settled and get him stationary. And then they leave and, and the God of heaven says, you can do whatever you want to do. And then that next morning when they come in, that statue of Dagon's fallen and now his head's fallen off. And it just really messed them up. And so they decided, you know what, we're in, a, we're in a bad spot. And there was some plagues that came upon the, the Philistines that you don't want those kind of plagues, I promise you. And they said, we're going to send it back. And so they put it on a cart. And they, what they did is they said, we're going to get two milk calves. I don't know if any of you have been raised around, around uh, uh, cows. But you, you get a, 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 a cow that has a calf. And that calf is having to nurse that mother uh, that mother will stay very close to where that calf is. And, and it doesn't matter. I mean, that calf, and if you've never heard a baby cow bawl, then, then it's the most lonesome, 
God-forsaken, sad thing you'll ever hear in your life. And, and, and that, that mama cow will do anything to stay around her calf. And so the, the Philistines, this is what they said. They said, let us take the ark, put it on a cart, and we'll get two cows that have milk calves. We'll tie the milk calves up so they can't go. And we'll see if these mama cows will take the ark of God's presence back to Israel. It would have had to have been a miracle. And God put an internal GPS inside the, 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 those, those mama cows. And they left their bawling calves back in Philistine. And they transversed across. And they, they got to a place and there the Ark of the Covenant existed in somebody's house for a while. But if you will, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 13. David has been anointed king. David, he's now in that place. God's finally brought him to that position. And, and 1 Chronicles chapter 13, and this is going to be the first threshing floor that we see of David's life. That David got together all of his commanders. Those commanders, the English Standard Version says, of the thousands and of the hundreds, the leaders. And he said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to all of our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel as well as the priests and the Levites of the cities and let us bring again the ark of our God unto us. David began to realize we're missing the presence of God. We're missing that, that, that item of great importance that represents God with us. And, and it's not here. And then there is a tragic statement that is made at the end of that, that verse, chapter, chapter 13, verse 3. Let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. We, I could preach a whole message on the, the difference between a Saul and a David. Saul never once, and it, it bears out in Scripture, Saul never once asked, where is the ark? Nobody around Saul's kingdom ever once said, you know what? There's something missing. Where is the ark? Why? Where, where is it? I, don't you remember it, it got put on a cart and it came back? And why, Where is it? Why don't we bring it back? No one ever did that in the days of Saul. They were okay with no presence of God. I'm not, I'm not content to be without his presence. I'm not content to come to church and have no move of God. I'm not content to live my life and never inquire where is God. I want to know where he is. In fact, I don't want to just know where he is, but I want him to be with me. And so he assembled all of Israel, and they begin to bring up there the ark of God. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, and, and Ahio, and they were driving the cart, and David and all of Israel were celebrating before God and all their mites with songs and lyres and, uh, and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Sidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there. Before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means the Lord has broke out against Uzzah. 
And David was afraid of God that day and said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? And David did not take the ark into the city of David, but set it aside in the house of Obadiah the Gittite. And the ark of God remained in the house of Obadiah and in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obadiah and all that he had. It's one of those portions of Scripture that, that in just a, a cursory reading, it doesn't make any sense. The ark of God is coming back. They've got it on a cart. And, and the ox stumbled. And the ark of God begins to tip precariously. And Uzzah just put his hand out to do a good thing, to hold the ark up, to not let the ark fall. And as soon as he touched the ark, one commentator says the, the glory of God was so much that Uzzah literally combusted and exploded. Boom. Why? Why, God, would you punish Uzzah? Why would you punish him for trying to respect the presence of God and not letting it fall? But it's because the presence of God, there is a right way to handle it. If I could take you to the book of Exodus chapter 25 and, and, and let you see a few things. we Some of you may remember it from our, our uh, series on the tabernacle, but Exodus chapter 25 says this, you'll make the ark of acacia wood, at two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height, you'll overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, make a molding of gold around it, and cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on the four feet, two rings on either side of it, two rings on the other side, and make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark, to carry by them and the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and shall not be taken from it. At the very beginning, God said, There's a right way to carry my presence. In fact, if you go to the book of, of Numbers, and, and uh, again, Numbers is not the most interesting book, at least at the beginning, that you could ever read, but it's these things right here that make Numbers what it is and powerful. Numbers chapter 4. And verse 1, and I'm not going to read it all, but it says that you're going to take a census of the sons of Koath among the sons of Levi. And it's these sons of Koath that are going to have the service in the tent of meeting. When the camp is set out, so remember, this is that they, they they built this tabernacle and all of the things in it, and 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 you know they had the the linen fence that went around it and all of the different coverings that were there. But listen to how important it was. When the camp is to be set out, so when you're about ready to leave where you are, the the the, the pillar of fire or the pillar of smoke, the cloud, when it gets ready to vacate the area you're at, this is how you get ready. Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen. And they'll cover the ark of the testimony with it. They'll put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth that is all blue and put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they'll spread a cloth of blue and put in on the plates and the dishes for incense and the bowls and the flagons. And the regular showbread shall be upon it. And it begins to tell all who carries and who carries what. There was a right way to carry the presence of God. And the reason Uzzah lost his life, first off, that house 
that the ark had been in for so long was connected to us and he had been around it and he had gotten careless with it and throughout all of the 400 years of the judges and throughout the years of Samuel there was no teaching about how do you get into the presence and there was no understanding of what the ark was the Bible says in Judges every man did what was right in his own eyes and Uzzah had just kind of grown up with a cavalier attitude towards the ark and he lost his life because he touched the presence of God unworthily on a threshing floor in Shaddon. It's the first threshing floor you see in David's life. And to be honest, I had, I had heard, I knew that Uzzah had touched the ark, but I'd never considered where Uzzah touched the ark. But let's look at the second threshing floor. The second threshing floor is found in 2 Samuel and chapter 24 and verse 18. 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 18. I'm going to kind of go, go between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The 2 Samuel says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. But if you jump over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, First Chronicles chapter 21 says a little bit differently. It says, And Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And so, what I'd, I'd like you to understand is in the Bible where it says he incited David, even though it just said the anger of the Lord was kindled, it's not necessarily saying that God incited David to do it. But Satan had moved on David and said, go number Israel and Judah. Go, go, go take a census. And it was a, it was a portion of pride in David's life. He, he was at the end of his reign and, and God has blessed him immensely. Even though he has had moral failure, God's blessed him and the kingdom is prospering. And David allowed pride and arrogance to rise in his life and he began to do a census. And really what he was wanting to know is how good, how, how, how rich am I? How, how many soldiers do I have? How big is my army? Not realizing it's not yours, David, it's God's. He even had Joab, which was one of David's generals, say, don't do this. And Joab was not a great man, and he, had, he, he never hardly made the right decision. But in this, he said, David, I wouldn't do that if I was you. And David ignored him and went on to number the Israel. He numbered him. And then in, in 20, chapter 24, verse 10, after he numbered the people, he realized his pride once again had gotten in the way. David as he did in the sin of Bathsheba, said, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done foolishly. The next morning, David had a knock on his door. It was the prophet Gad. Gad came to David and said, you've, you've angered God. Because of that, God is going to let you choose your punishment. Have you ever had parents that let you choose your punishment? My mama's here. I learned real quickly that that sometimes what I choose is not good. You know, it was, it was 
Now, mom, mom normally didn't whip with a switch. She had other various means of torture and abuse. And, but I remember one time she said, go get me a switch. And I went and got me a switch that's about that long. And I carried it in like a toothpick. And she didn't appreciate that. And I realized, don't make mama mad. I remember one time I went and got something about the size of a two-by-four figure. She wouldn't hit me with that. I was wrong. Maybe it wasn't a two-by-four, but, you know, it just didn't matter. No matter what I tried, I'd, she'd tell me I'd, be, I'd get in trouble at church, and she'd say those, those words. I don't know if any of you have ever heard those words. I don't even think my kids have even heard these words, but when we get home, I rude that. I, we only live like, I don't know, two minutes from church, and I would do my very best to fall asleep from church to home thinking how in the world would she ever punish a cute little child such as myself. There was no caring. She'd wake me up and give me my spanking. Choose your punishment. God said to David, David, choose your punishment. You can have three years of famine or you can have three months where your enemies will pursue you and overtake you and, and, and attack you or you can have three days of pestilence in your land. Now what do you want me to do? David weighed all of those, and he said, Lord, I, I'm going to put myself in your hands, whatever you see fit to do. And Lord said, okay, three days of pestilence. The Bible says the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. It was an attack. It was a, it was a punishment. And, and I don't know how you envision it, but you know, just to give you kind of an idea, the population of O'Fallon is roughly 90,000 people. Can you imagine in one, what, 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 what seems to appear one day, maybe it's not because it says the appointed time, but what appears to be one day, just people begin to die one right after another. Figure out uh, uh, 70,000 and figure out how many people would have to die uh, per second in a 24-hour span. And somebody, you, you could do the math and you could begin to think about all of that. It was a horrible moment in Israel's history and the angel of the Lord was stretching out his hand. The pestilence, the attack, the, the Lord was, was coming and it was getting close to Jerusalem. The wails of those whose loved ones had passed away was there. And David began to speak to the Lord as he saw the angel striking the people. It's very similar to the death angel that came through uh, uh, Egypt on that tenth plague. And it, it was, obviously they could see it coming. They could, And David saw it approaching Jerusalem and he cried out again, I've sinned, I've done wickedly, punish me God, don't punish the people. And so the prophet Gad came to David on that day and he said, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of the Jebusite named Aruna. And David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And David was walking to a threshing floor. It's the bookend of the threshing floor that was there at the beginning. And David said they were there and, and they're threshing the corn, the wheat, the grain, whatever it might be. And David says, I've got to sacrifice. And, and the, the, the guy there said, okay, we'll come and do it. And, and, and uh, what do you want to do? What do you need? And David said, I need to buy this threshing floor. 
man said, no, you don't have to do that, David. You can borrow it. It's yours. Do whatever you need to do. In fact, here's some oxen that we're using, and there's some, some wooden implements that, that we use for oxen. Why don't you burn those, kill the oxen, just do it, whatever you need. It's yours. Here it is. I give it to you. And the king said, no, I, I have to buy it from you for a price. I cannot offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. And the David bought the threshing floor. He bought the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. He built an altar to the Lord. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. David came into the presence of God properly. Later on you'll find out, especially if you begin to read in, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you find out that that threshing floor was, be, became a very important place because that threshing floor was going to be the place where Solomon's temple was going to be built. In fact, David made this statement. He says, where, this, where I'm building this sacrifice... That's where I want the ark, or the, I want the, the 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 altar of burnt sacrifice to be in the new temple. David bought it for a price. The tale of two threshing floors. One threshing floor, someone reached out and casually came in contact with the presence of God, and God didn't like it. The other one found the proper way to be in His presence, and and because of that, God ministered. Why a threshing floor? I, I, I tend to, as I read the Bible, I tend to, to, to realize that the Lord doesn't use words idly. And if you find similarities, they're supposed to be there. There, there are similarities that you find that uh, it didn't just happen, it wasn't just by happenstance. A threshing floor was not necessarily all that common. There wasn't a threshing, threshing floor on every corner like a 7-Eleven. It wasn't that there's so many threshing floors, you're bound to walk over one in a bit. In fact, a threshing floor was normally built in the fields, in a high area that, that usually stood higher than everything else in that field. It, it had been a little hill or a little knoll or, or something along that, that place. And it was an area that would have been exposed to the wind. Later on, and, and you kind of see that's actually a threshing floor in that picture, but the first threshing floors, they would go to that, that area in the field that was higher than everything else, and they would go and they would pick up all the stones until only dirt remained. And they would beat and kick and stamp down that dirt until it was as hard as concrete. And then what they would do, the, the early threshing floors, they would, they would take their bundles of wheat. Everybody kind of get an idea of a bundle of wheat. You know, it's a little stalk and it has the kernels of wheat. And inside there, uh, those kernels, they're wrapped in a husk, if you will. And so you, in order to get the wheat out, you've got to separate the wheat from the husks and from the stalks. They would go with those long sickles and grab handfuls of that grain and, and, and slice it off and they would have these, these heads of grain that still had a pretty good stalk on them and they would bring them to that flat dirt floor that was hard as concrete and they would begin to lay bundles of wheat on there and they had these threshing instruments at the beginning that were... were, were uh, they did it all different ways but one that I've seen, it was, it was kind of a jointed... Uh, for, for lack of a better word, almost a nunchuck looking device. You, you would hold it and it would have a, 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 a chain and then at the end would be a rake and as you would swing it, that, that rake part could, could flail about and they would beat 
that grain on that threshing floor. And after they would beat it, what it was doing was it was breaking up the brittle husks. It was breaking up the brittle stalks and that hard kernel of wheat would remain kind of unbroken. And then after they beat it for a while, they would take a big pitchfork and they would get down into that grain and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would be blowing over that area and the wind would take the dust and those light husks and those broken pieces of straw and the wind would kind of blow them out but the heavier grains would fall and over and over and over they would do that. Later on, like this picture entails, they would actually build a floor of stone and then they, they would have threshing oxen that would walk over it. Instead of beating it, they would have oxen walk over it. And then later on, they, they, they grew their technology to where they would take two stones that were mated together and, and those stones would kind of grind, not, not necessarily like a, like a mill would grind corn, but it was a, a way that stone could roll over it and the weight would crush and, and break up that chaff and, and they would do that. Winnowing is what they what you call that tossing of the grain and chaff mixture into the air. And the wind would blow away the chaff and the impurities. And when the chaff was grown was gone, then that the, whatever remained, the grain and the hard areas, they would pick up that and they would put it into a sifter and they would sift out all of the dirt and all of the rock and all of the big pieces until only the grain remained. And then they could take that to a, a place where, where they could, could grind it. It's, it, it you, you begin to see a picture that plays out even until the end times where the Lord says there will come a judgment where I will separate the sheep from the goats. But it also makes a statement, I will separate the wheat from the chaff. There's going to be a moment where the things of God will remain, but the things that are not of God will blow away or be burned up. So that's why the Bible says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and dust doth corrupt, but lay treasures for yourself up in heaven where it can't, the moth can't eat it, the rust can't get it, and the dust can't corrupt it. The altar that David built, he built it on a threshing floor. Of all the places in Israel I, I, I had a hard time figuring out why build an altar on a threshing floor. Surely there's got to be another holier place. David, why didn't you go run to the tabernacle? David, why didn't you go run even to one of the high places that were around there? Why did you do that? It's because there is a correlation with that threshing floor. Threshing floor where the grain is separated from the chaff where the good and the bad of a harvest are separated. Where, where, where you, you, you see, if they didn't do that, that grain was useless. They could go through all of the work of planting the grain, go all the work of fertilizing the grain, watering the grain, letting it grow, harvesting the grain. But if there wasn't a separation, the grain was useless. Could it be... That there's no coincidence that God chose the site of his temple. That place of sacrifice, that place of surrender be built on a place of separation. 
I'm convinced the longer I'm alive that true worship always leads to a place in our life where we begin to separate the things of God from the things of this world. As you and I walk through life and we live life, the, the, just the fact that we're human and we walk through this world, it's mixed with the things that we have in our spiritual life, if you will. One writer said it's the, that, that, that um, it, it's God that, the, that as we live our day-to-day lives, God, the God in us coexists with the things that are not of God. And one of the problems with life, see, I've lived this long enough, so so I want you to listen very carefully. I've lived this long enough that that there is a word that tends to be used in a very negative sense. It's called holiness. But my Bible tells me this, without holiness, no man can see God. The Lord's own words said it this way, be holy for I am holy. What, what, what scares me is when someone can claim to be walking with God but never changed. I've had several conversations over the last couple of weeks uh, uh, on it. In fact, just before church, Sister Candy Reed and I were talking about the same thing, about people who, who, who claim to be of God but, but there's no change in their life. Brother Don, we were going hunting the other day and we were talking about that, how, how people can can never change. And, and here's what happens. It's because they, they, they walk with God and, or they, they say they walk with God, but the things of the world and the things of God intermix and there is no separation. And your worship becomes useless. There has to be a place in our life where we get to the threshing floor of separation and we allow our life to be challenged by God and, and we allow the negative within us and the, the world and its, and its trappings and its, 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 uh, the, the things of this world. We say, God, I don't want that to be always mixed. Is there anything in my life you need to separate me from? Worship has a way of shaking the chaff from the wheat. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. I have a hard time singing that when the life I've lived doesn't match to the life he's calling me to. I read something, and, and I'm, I'm racking my brain because so many times I, I remember it and I don't write it down, and then I have to try to pull it back. But somebody just very recently, I believe it was a pastor, said we've gotten to the place where people know truth. They know what the Bible says. And they don't, they know that the life they're living doesn't match up to the Word of God. 
So instead of, you know, because when you know that, it kind of goes back to Romans chapter 7, that the law tells us you're sinning and there's nothing you can do about that. So they, they read the word of God and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not living the way I should be living. The lifestyle I'm living is not right. And so what they do is that in, in, instead of being affronted by the word of God and the word of God convicting them and they make a change, they just decide they don't want to believe in God anymore. Because somehow that makes it all better. But when I begin to worship, there's something that takes place on the threshing floor. As I begin to exalt Jesus, and I begin to magnify him, and I begin to see him as he is, and I begin to see the sovereignty of God, and I begin to see the, the, the majesty of God, and I begin to see that there is a consequence. And if you want to be a true worshiper, you've got to be ready to handle the consequence. The consequence is this. When you begin to worship him, he begins to winnow your life. That was that, that beating of the chaff, that, or the beating of the, of the grain, and, and it begins to separate the chaff from the wheat and the stalks from the wheat. And when you begin to worship him, true worship, it begins to create in your life a separation and there will be things that have been undisturbed for years suddenly begin to come to the surface when you worship him and the more you worship him the more you surrender your life to him the more the Bible says you lose your life and gain it rather than try to save your life and lose it by the way but the more you worship the more he separates things out and you walk from that saying God I want to be more like you. The greatest holiness in our life does not come from a law or rule. It comes from a heart that God begins to move on and God begins to say, I'm separating some things. I'm going to separate you. Why? Because I'm calling you out that threshing floor. It's a special place. It's a place of reconciliation. It's a place of refining. It's a place of surrender. In fact, you find in Ruth chapter 3 that Ruth meets Boaz on a threshing floor. The story of Ruth and Boaz, while it is a real story and there's history in there, it is the story, if you will, it is the picture of, of, of Jesus reconciling you and I, the bridegroom, or rather, he's the bride and we're the bride. He represented where God brings the church together with himself and they're made one at that place of threshing. It's a place of separation. It's a place of where we're that. That threshing floor. It's where God separates the wheat from the chaff of our life. And when you begin to enter into that worship, you step into God's threshing floor. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There's a separation that has to take place in our life if you want to be in the presence of God. Because although I'm thankful for the grace of God, I'm thankful for the mercy of God, I'm thankful for the long-suffering of God and the patience of God. It still remains a fact that God is holy. And holiness and unholiness cannot coexist together.
And when that day comes that he desires to bring you into his home, when that rapture begins to take place and you go Only those that have allowed their lives to be winnowed. Only those who have allowed their life to have some separation in it. Where God begins to move on you and there are some things that he allows the wind of the Holy Ghost to push out. Only that is going to let you come. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, and it says it like this. It says, having therefore these promises dearly beloved. What promises? The promise of the Holy Ghost. The promise of that initial salvation, if you will. But it said, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Why? Because there is a threshing floor experience that each one of us need. I cannot just casually come into the presence. I can't casually walk into church say well go ahead and move God I'm here alright God I, I made it I braved the tornado sirens I'm here go ahead and move God's looking for those who say Lord you've saved me see there, there, you cannot what, what Paul said that perfecting holiness you cannot be holy without salvation there's not a there's not a rule book there's not a law you can't check it off you can't say well I didn't cuss today I'm holy and never be saved you can't even have a conversation of holiness until you have let the blood of Jesus cleanse your life the Bible says your righteousness is as filthy rags if you try to clean your own life up by your actions that's not what holiness is holiness is where God has cleansed us And then he allows us to draw closer to him and be like him. If I'm going to be like him, one of the things he is is holy. I want to be like him. I want to be without spot and blemish. I may not ever be able to accomplish that on my earthly walk, but when I get to heaven, he'll finish that work that he started in me. But the presence of God after salvation requires a price David walked on that threshing floor and he said "He said, you know if I'm going to be in the presence of God it's going to cost me something I can't borrow your oxen I can't borrow your threshing instruments I can't even borrow your threshing floor it has to be mine there's a sacrifice in fact if I can mix my metaphors for a moment Saul tried to do it the wrong way. Saul tried to, to you know, just kind of go through the motions and figured he could get it out. And he, he wanted to offer a sacrifice when it was very clearly the, 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 the job of the priest and the prophet to offer the sacrifice. And Saul went ahead and did it anyway. And Samuel shows up and he begins to chastise Saul. And he makes the statement. He says, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. I know I'm mixing my metaphors because sacrifice ought to cost you something, but obedience always costs you something. Because obedience says this, not my will, but thy will be done. Obedience says it doesn't matter what I think, it matters what your word says. 
doesn't matter what I want to do. It matters what you desire for me to do. And so God, if I'm going to be in your presence, you got to take me to a threshing floor. There's got to be some winnowing. There's got to be some separation that happens in my life. Then as you begin to separate, begin to toss that up, the wind of your spirit begins to blow. Lord, let it blow the things that are unclean. Let it blow the things that would weigh me down. Paul said, not everything is a sin, but there's a lot of things that are weights for me. I may never be able to show you in the Bible why something is black and white, right or wrong, but I can show you plenty of things in, the, in, in my life that i got to be really careful because I could go just way off into it. It would become a weight to me. Pretty soon I'd be slogging. You know, I, I don't know if any of you've ever done it, but I love the outdoors. And, and, and I've, I've walked through some bloody fields in my big old rubber boots. Every step you keep sticking more mud and that sticky old clay onto your boots by the time you get in walking you got about 15 pounds of mud on your boots and you didn't even really catch it until the end and you realize how much weight you're carrying sometimes God it's not the sin he needs to get out of our life it's the weights he needs to get out of our life the things that just kind of drag us down the things that just kind of get I remember a, a children's sermon that I saw I, I didn't do it I, I don't know if it was Brother Squires or Brother Plot, but they took those old white tube socks and they filled them full of sand and they sewed them up so they were kind of long sand, uh, you know, sandbags. And they'd get a little kid to come out and they'd say, okay, raise your hands like you're worshiping God. And that kid would raise your hand and they'd put one of those sand-filled socks on each of their arms and say, now raise your hand. And most of the time that kid could still raise his hand. And they'd put another one on each, each, each arm. And finally there would be a moment to where that kid did not have enough strength. They finally reached the, the breaking point. That's those weights. So God, when I come into your presence, I don't come presumptuously. I don't come haphazardly. I don't come casually. I come saying, God, if I'm going to be in your presence, I'm going to meet you at a threshing floor, a place of separation. Lord, whatever, in my, whatever you see in my life that I need to remove or I need to make sure I don't get involved in or I need to make sure it doesn't take residence Lord whatever it is separate in my life the wheat from the unneeded unwanted chaff and if you'll learn to do that then you'll find yourself moved by God's presence each and every time but it's going to cost you something in Jesus name would you stand with me principles of God are so powerful so what I want you to catch tonight are those principles and I want you to get to the place in your life when you come into his house and you come into your times of prayer you say Lord whatever you see fit change me because I want to be like you I don't want to be like me the Bible says when I look in a mirror I don't want to see my reflection but Lord I want to see the reflection of you that I want to be changed from glory to glory until all I can see is you because that's what I'm working on that's my goal that's my desire not to be Brandon Buford but to be what God calls me to be would you lift your hands as our praise team begins to sing and would you just begin to talk to God only you can do it I, I've preached it but I can't do it for your life I can't I can't put you on the threshing floor I can't winnow you you gotta let God do that
You got to let God begin to move and say, here's some things you need to separate from. Here's some thoughts you need to allow me to blow out of your mind. Here's some deeds and actions you need to let me get rid of. Would you find that place of sacrifice in the name of Jesus?